0: As Pastor Tighe said, I'm Vicar Joel, and it's my, uh, truly my, my pleasure to be with you today to, to share God's word with you. Uh, when we're taking this slow walk through Colossians, uh, there are bound to be some times where you're preaching a sermon on only a couple of verses. So today we have only six verses, but they are absolutely jammed pack. Uh, they, they are dense verses, and a fun fact uh, is that they're, this is all one sentence in Greek. Paul is a big fan of the semicolon and the run-on sentence, uh, so all of this incredible, deep theological talk is all one sentence. Uh, and uh, but it's great. We'll we'll enjoy it together. Uh, let's go. Colossians chapter one verses twenty-four through twenty-nine. Paul writes: Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church. warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So this past week, I learned of the existence of several rules uh, that I had never heard of before. Um, But maybe you have, maybe not. Uh, These rules include the floss rule, the milk truck rule, the bed rule, and others. See, for many of you out there, those may just sound like gibberish. Uh, That's what they sounded to me when I heard them. But these rules are different tips and tricks that children with dyslexia learn in order to help them read well, help them to distinguish between letters, uh, help them to sound out words that, that they haven't seen before. See, for instance, we have that bed rule. The English alphabet was not designed for children with dyslexia. um, So a lot of the letters end up looking a lot like each other, especially that lowercase b and lowercase d that are just mirror images of one another. And so to help uh, uh, people with dyslexia work through that difficulty, they use the bed rule, and they imagine the word bed in their minds. So they go, b-e-d, b-e-d. And when they do that, they realize that it kind of looks like a bed, right? have The the headboard is kind of the the long edge of the B, and then the the footboard is the long edge of the D. And then they can remember, okay, if they see that letter in in a reading, they can say, is that the the front edge of the bed or the end edge of the bed? And they can help distinguish between their lowercase b's and d's. Now, for most people, reading has become second nature, especially adults. See, reading is second nature, and and, and all those steps would be just completely unnecessary. It's something you do now without really thinking about what you're doing. But for those with disabilities or for the younger members of our congregation who are just now beginning to learn to read, well, these are essential steps in order to be able to read. Because it's harder for them. And when things are harder, they just take more. They take more Effort, They take more time. They take more just thinking about what you are doing and why you're doing it at all. There are times in our faith walk, I think, where our faith feels second nature. It feels like something that we just do without really thinking about, about it. Uh, perhaps if you've been in the church for a while, you, you don't need to think about what church is or what grace is. Now that's not to say that these aren't important things to you. They may be very important. We just don't really need to really think much about them. You don't need to put effort into dissecting them down piece by piece. Instead, you're just living it. Day in, day out, you're just living in faith. But there are other times when we don't have this luxury. There are times when our faith is a challenge. Day after day, it takes a little bit more to, to think, wow, what does church really mean? What is church even all about? Or, or God, what, what, what am I even doing here? What, what, what is this all worth? Is this even worth it to be a Christian? It's these moments of, of often intense suffering that we need to begin to ask ourselves these questions. We need to slow down and really take the time to think about what we're doing and why. Well, the Apostle Paul— was given lots of these moments. Throughout his life, he was constantly being thrown in jail, being put on trial, or being threatened to be killed. And so for him, he needed to constantly think about what his ministry was, what his ministry was all about, what God was really doing through the church and what God was doing through the entire world. And in these verses from Colossians that we just read, Paul shares... What he's arrived at. And he he, he gives us these three, at least three I I drew, three reasons why Paul still has hope and why Paul still preaches the gospel even when it means intense suffering. These are three things that God had done before, that God was continuing to do for Paul, and three things that God is still doing today. So that's going to be the important question for us this morning. What does Paul point to as his reason for continuing to proclaim the gospel even when it means intense suffering? Well, in the first place, uh, Paul essentially says, what other choice do I have? See, when when he describes his role in the church, Paul says, I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Stewardship from God. God. The way Paul describes the work that he does for the church is as a stewardship. And what what stewardship actually means here, uh, it's oikonomia. So it's oikos, which is house, and nomia, which is laws or rule. So this is all about, it's like an image of a household manager, of how the, the leader of a household would govern the way that he leads his household, and often his business as well was tied in as well. And so Paul is looking at his life as God's household, what God is managing and what God has given to Paul to be just a portion of God's entire house that he is managing. See, with this simple phrase, Paul is pointing out something really important, that this role of ministry is not his own. The occupation of apostle isn't something that Paul signed up for at a career fair. It's something more like a list of chores that his mom put on and he has to do them. Or it's like the servant obeying his master. It's what Paul is doing only because God has chosen him and God has called him to do it. And you know, the, the church itself isn't something that belongs to Paul. This household only belongs to God. God. And if God has chosen Paul to do the work of proclaiming the gospel, well, who is Paul to say otherwise? This is a really simple thing, but yet so important thing for us to remember and understand. That this church does not belong to any one of us. St. Luke's Oviedo, Florida, does not belong to the pastors or the staff. It doesn't belong to the people who write the biggest checks. It doesn't... Belong to the, the people who spend the most time here volunteering their time. It only belongs to God. And at different times and in different places, he, he gives management over portions of it to each one of us. And it's a dangerous thing, though, if we get this backwards. If we begin to think that the church is our own, then we can fall into all these petty fights that come so naturally. To us humans, I have been warned multiple times at the seminary that the uh, single room at a church that causes the most arguments is the kitchen. See, that's where people have to interact with one another, different groups. That, that oh, who whose cabinets belong to who? Uh, whose pots and pans are these? Who was it that left the the kitchen a mess last night? All these things just create arguments that churches have to sort through. And if the church belongs to us, then we end up feeling the need to fight to defend what matters to us. The kitchen, our pride. But the church is God's alone. And so Paul points us to the fact that the church is God's alone. This is so much bigger than anything fighting for us Each one of us instead are servants who get to take on just a piece of this household. And we fight for and we manage what matters to God. We fight for and we manage what matters to God alone. So that's point one that that Paul really gives for his reason to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Uh, And here's the second point. Paul says that he is working to proclaim the mystery hidden for ages and generations— but now revealed to his saints uh, this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you. Paul is willing to preach and work without ceasing, no matter the cost, even through every single hardship, because when the gospel is proclaimed, there Jesus is. Jesus is truly present in and among his people. This is what makes a sermon different than a college lecture or a TED Talk. This is what makes the church different than just any old group of friends or any old social club in our city. God among us, Jesus among us. When we gather and pray together, when we hear the word of God proclaimed, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, here is Jesus really, truly among us and for paul that's worth suffering anything that's worth anything at all to actually meet our god and receive his forgiveness what could be more important than that and the way paul talks about it suffering will come it is inevitable right at the beginning of our reading today there was this tricky verse that that, that sounds pretty strange paul said In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Is there something lacking in Christ's afflictions? That seems backwards. See, nothing is lacking in Christ's afflictions that he spilled out on the cross for us. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it, that he completed all the work necessary for your forgiveness, for your salvation. And yet... There is still something lacking in the, the world's view towards Jesus. See, the world again and again when Jesus walked the earth, hated him. They cast him out, they ridiculed him, abused him and even killed him. And now years later, when Paul is now preaching the same gospel that Jesus came to proclaim, the church, or the, the world rather, still has hate for the church, still has hate for. The body of Christ. And though they can't physically wound Jesus anymore, they wound Paul. They wound the body of Christ that's still here. See, if the church is really the body of Christ, then that's, that's great. That means that Jesus is present among us. But if the church is really the body of Christ, then that also means that the world will seek to harm us just like the world sought to harm Jesus. But As Paul says, that's not a reason to stop preaching the gospel. This all makes me think of the story of the Hagia Sophia. The Hagia Sophia is is a uh, church—it's still standing, but it's actually a a rebuilt church now. Uh, In the 400s AD, the Hagia Sophia, if you read descriptions of it, it sounds like the most beautiful church to have ever existed. It is a, a wonder of the ancient world. And while the church building was beautiful, the congregation also was thriving as well. They were led by their pastor, John Chrysostom, uh, and they were gaining members and gaining a little influence in the community that scared the emperor. And so in response, the emperor wanted to kind of take control of this group of people and take control of this beautiful building. And so he put a statue of his wife, the empress, in the back of it. And he didn't just put a statue there, but he wanted— people to sing songs to the statue, and to even worship the statue with tambourines, especially on Sunday morning, right during the message. And so in response, John Chrysostom, the pastor, spoke out against the emperor and against the the statue and the empress. And for that, John Chrysostom was banished. He he was exiled and taken out of the city. And then the emperor could have full control over this beautiful church. But in response to that— The congregation burned their church down. See, the emperor underestimated what the Christians were all about that day. He thought that they were just some people with a beautiful building, but he didn't realize that they actually believed in something. They actually stood for something that mattered more than a beautiful building, that mattered more than anything else in the entire world. They believed that Jesus was truly present whenever and wherever they worshiped whether it was in a world-class piece of architecture or if it was in the middle of the street, Jesus would be there. Jesus is here too. Our faith is in Christ alone. Our faith is not in a balanced budget or in great facilities. Our faith is in Christ alone. See, these material things are wonderful things, and they are great gifts of God Our faith is in the God who makes himself known whenever and wherever we worship. Our faith is in Jesus, by whose death our punishment for sin was removed, and by whose resurrection we will rise again. That is the reason why we can keep working as stewards of God's church, no matter what our church looks like, and no matter what may happen to our church and to us. Well, finally, that leads me to the, the third and, and final truth that, that Paul really speaks to in our reading this morning. So that first, it was God, it's God's church. Uh, the second, that it's Jesus who is made known through everything the church does. And third and finally, God is the one at work through to the end. At the end of this chapter of Colossians, Paul says, For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This task of an apostle is not something that Paul is doing on his own. God is the one who called him into this ministry. God is the one who is sustaining him now, and God is the one who will continue to sustain him through to the end. No matter what may happen to Paul, no matter what imprisonment or death he may suffer— See, this is also not a task that we are doing on our own, but God is actually working through us. And God will work through us, especially when we experience the worst afflictions this world has to offer, even through our suffering. And see, when we experience that suffering, if we trust that it is God actually at work through us at all times, then we can embrace it. We don't need to run away from it. We don't need to hide from discomfort in our world. But actually, there's great ministry that God does through suffering. Maybe the the, the best chances we have to speak to those around us happen when we are in the same boat that they are in, but they don't have the hope that we have in Christ. Maybe the best ministry that we can do is to the person lying in the hospital bed next to you or to your, your coworker who is just as overworked and anxious as you are, or to your friends and your family members who are stressed out about inflation and Supreme Court decisions and, and whatever else is going on in our world. In every moment, God is the one who is energizing and working through us, and he will continue to work through us till the very end.